All right, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we uh, once again come before you to uh, hear from your word. Uh, and Lord, we need your spirit to open our eyes uh, and our ears and our hearts to receive your word. So Spirit, we invite you uh, here this morning, uh, knowing you're always with us, but we um, pray for a special anointing uh, that we would hear what you would have to say to us this morning. So speak, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're um, sort of rounding off a little bit of our biblical stories, our biblical narrative. We've been going through that since um, midway through last year. Uh, and going through all the the big story of the Bible, the big meta-narrative that holds it together. And uh, this week we are finishing the Bible. Um, I I want to say Bible part of it. Um, I don't mean that. We hopefully will continue with the Bible from here on. But looking at at the story as it's written in the Bible. Um, From the first week of next term, um, so the first time we're back in here, we're having a little break for the holidays, we're talking about our part in the story. Okay, so we're going to lay the foundations, and now what, what part do we have to play? What part do we have to continue on the story? And so um, last week we looked at the letters to the churches um, that Paul had written, and Peter and John in the, their letters, and the encouragements that they had. You know, the churches weren't just kind of pushed out into the ocean and said, right, off you go, do it yourself. But actually, uh, the apostles and those who planted the churches continually wrote to them to encourage them, to uh, give them wisdom about how to face certain situations that they needed to in life. Um, and, and we're the same. I, I brought that out last week. We're the same. We need encouragement from one another. We need to discern what the gospel means in every situation we encounter in our lives. What does it mean for my family? What does it mean for work, school, um, my social life? All of those different things. And today, uh, obviously, uh, we've got to Revelation. So the very last book in the Bible, and I'm going to... Um, give you the whole of Revelation in 10 minutes. Um, I won't, though, I promise. No, I'm not, not going to go with that. So basically, Revelation, um, scholars ag- agree that it was basically written probably around 92 to 96 AD um, under the emperor Dom- Domitian. And um, some people think it was written when Nero was persecuting the church in around about 64 uh, AD. Um, but most of the evidence points to the fact that it, it was written at a later date. Um, And so uh, what was happening in the empire at that time was there was the beginnings or the increasing um, role of emperor worship. So emperors were claiming to be divine. They were setting up cults. They were setting up temples to themselves. um, And uh, Christians were becoming martyred. Um, We read uh, in uh, Revelations 2 of at least one martyr, a fellow by the name of Antipas in the church of Pergamum. Um, and I just think for a second, what effect would that have on us? Even if just one person in Auckland was martyred because they were a Christian. As we think about the context of Revelation and there's martyrdom starting to happen, what, what would happen to our psyche, to our way of being in the world, if we heard over in West Auckland someone had been martyred for their faith and that the council, the city council approved of it? Weren't going to do anything. It was the right thing to do. So that's the kind of context that these guys are in. And this is, this is the, the encouragement that they need. Now, for a while, Judaism had kept Christianity under its umbrella. Essentially, um, Jews had special privileges under Roman law. I think they were called peculiar people um, because they only believed in one God. 
Um, in fact, the, the Romans called them atheists because they only believed in one God. You know, kind of ironic how we use the word nowadays. Um, but by this time, the Jews were pretty sick of the Christians, and so they'd started to kick them out of the synagogues and disown them. And so the Romans sort of cottoned on to this and were like, well, you have no special privileges. You have no special rights under our law, and so you're not protected in the way that you once were. Um, and so, again, persecutions kept coming to the church. Um, but as people started to join the church, as they started to put their faith in Jesus, they also had some other problems that came up. And this is where we need to, again, think about how does the gospel speak into our lives? Um, the, the people faced problems because most of um, the artisans, most of the working class belonged to guilds. Um, and each guild had a deity, and they would often have um, feasts for these guilds, and they would take place not in someone's house, not in the community center, but in the pagan temple. And so to go into the pagan temple and to have a feast there was to invite that deity to feast with you. And so the Christians then faced a problem. Do they commit economic suicide by not belonging to one of these guilds, in which case no one would give them any business and they'd be ostracized, their family would lose all their money, uh, they'd run out of business and basically life would be in the you know, life would come to an end essentially. Or do they commit religious suicide and go in and take, take part in these feasts and these temples and disconnect themselves, cut themselves off from the faith that they believed in? And so the Christians are in this horrible position uh, in this time of... Uh, the Roman um, of, of history. Um, and in that context, these messages came through from prophetic figures who would travel around from church to church um, saying, look, it's, it's easier and it's wiser to participate in this pagan worship. After all, you could participate on the outside, can't you? Perhaps sprinkle a little bit of incense, eat some meat, be at the feast, but not actually participate with your heart. Why don't you just do that? That's fine. Have the best of both worlds. But John will have no truck of it. This is compromise. This is idolatrous worship. Those who bring such a message, John says, are false prophets. So, as we come to look at Revelation, we also need to understand that Revelation is a particular type of book. I'm not going to go into, um, perhaps I'm being a little bit cowardice in this, um, I'm only going to look at chapters 1, 2, and 3, um, and I'll leave the kind of um, apocalyptic, more apocalyptic stuff um, for another time, um, yet to be confirmed when that's going to be. <laughs> um, but apocalyptic literature is a certain type of literature, and, and there's many examples of it, so the book of Revelation isn't the only example of this. Um, Daniel um, and the Bible has it, um, another um, uh, extra-biblical Jewish um, uh, writings are described as apocryphal, uh, not apocryphal, um, apocalyptic, I'm getting my words mixed up here, um, and essentially what they do is, is they don't tell a narrative, they don't tell a story in the same way that we do, they don't tell it in a linear fashion, um, they use pictures rather than stories and propositional language. Um, people reckon political cartoon would be the way of, you know, the most closely uh, related uh, genre in our own context to what Revelation was, because it was highly political as well. It was speaking against the rulers 
and the government of the time to give a subversive message about who was truly in charge. Was it Caesar as Lord or was it Jesus as Lord? And that's, that's the, the message of um, Revelation, is that actually Jesus is Lord of this world, not Caesar. Despite the fact that there seems to be this disconnect between the victory that Christ has won and the sovereignty of God over history and what is happening to you, despite that, Jesus is Lord and will bring about his purposes and bring victory in the end. The key to this is, um, so yeah, so with that idea of picture comes to the, the fact that there are actually three repeating circles of um, the same narrative in Revelations. They just expand. And so these narratives coincide with the breaking of the seals, the blowing of the trumpets, uh, and the bowls as well. And Augustine, the 5th century, wrote about this, referring to the repetition of the same things in forms so different that the things referred to seem to be different, although in fact they are only differently stated. Which is basically saying, in the book of Revelations, John goes over the same thing three times from three different angles. And it's as if you're watching a rugby game for the first time, and you'd never heard of what an action replay is, right? And they'd show it from a different angle, and you'd think that the same person had scored the same try, but just in a slightly different way that kind of looked the same, right? You'd think try after try after try had been scored. You'd think it was like the game last night, wouldn't you? Um, but not, not, that's not the case. It's just the same, uh, same piece of action being replayed from a different angle with a different emphasis. Um, and so this whole emphasis is to say that Jesus is Lord. The book of Revelation also focuses on Jesus as well. Uh, Laurie Guy, who used to be the, um, I think the principal of Kerry Baptist College, um, put it like this, and I think this is really good. Revelation is a book of refreshment. Its recipients are under terrible stress. This is made worse because theology seems to be out of kilter with reality. Christ and his followers should be triumphant, but that does not seem to be the case. There is, in sociological language, a cognitive dissonance, an intolerable tension between expectations and reality. Through a wonderful juxtaposition of images, though, John affirms both the reality of evil and the omnipotence of his faithful, covenant-keeping God. The terrifying images of John underscore the stark reality that the believers face. Yet somehow that reality does not matter in the same way as it did before. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. More than anything else, Revelation is a book for believers that is to be read with hope. What is the hope? The hope is Christ. The suffering of those first century believers is not hopeless. In fact, John, in fact, John says, it is in and through suffering that victory comes. That was so with Christ. It was the slaughtered lamb who was the conquering lion. Victory comes through defeat. Resurrection through death. And so what we see is Revelation is a book of encouragement, a book of hope, a book that is centered on Jesus. And the letters of the first couple of chapters ground that book in history, ground it in reality, and I think can offer us uh, some gleanings of wisdom. So I'm just going to highlight three of those churches, um, and hopefully we can gain some encouragement from those. So the first one is Ephesus in uh, the, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And if we read 
Uh, Revelations chapter 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hands, who walks amongst the seven gold lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the works you first did. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent, you have the, yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So um, this is Jesus writing to the churches. Um, if uh, you well, didn't make that clear, I'm sorry. Um, but he has praise for the church. He praises their faithfulness. He praises their willingness to stand firm in the truth despite all the opposition that comes their way, despite the false doctrine that other people are trying to teach. They test those who are claiming to be apostles and come their way to the point where he acted... Yeah, sorry, I said that. They um, also have not grown weary of standing firm in the faith, often standing firm and constantly battering up against the persecution or criticism that you face can be tiring and exhausting, but the church in Ephesus isn't being exhausted, and they dislike these Nicolaitans, basically um, people who are trying to cause division in the church. They don't know exactly what it was, scholars don't know and what, it, what that was, but the, what Jesus says to this church is, this is all fantastic. The fact that you hold to the truth and the fact that you're faithful and the fact that you have the right doctrine is great, but you've lost love. If you don't get torn apart by these false doctrines, you may very well be torn apart by not loving one another. Even in the midst of persecution, they cannot forget the one thing that is most central to the Christian identity. The one thing that holds all those doctrines together and makes them Christian and makes them about Jesus. That is love. If the church forgets this, they can very well be destroyed. You could swing from one extent to the uh, one extreme to the other, standing up for truth and theological and uh, intellectual integrity might throw out love and hurt people in the process. And so the call for the church is to remain faithful and true to the words and teaching of Jesus. It's the same call that there is for us today, isn't there? Are we doing that? Uh, Can Jesus write to us, write to GPC and say, well done, you are contending to the faith handed down to you. But are we offending people not because of the gospel that has a tendency to offend people when it calls out their sin, are we offending people with ourselves? Are we being unloving? Are we tearing down one another to assert my position on a biblical truth? Am I calling someone out for something that I see them do and say, well, the Bible says it's like that, so I can say it to you? I'm just saying this because I love you. 
you need to conform to the truth of the Bible and so on and so forth and just be really rude and brash and uh, offensive? Are we generous with our loving of our non-Christian neighbours? Are we generous with our love and our forgiveness and our grace to one another? You know, there's a the Pharisee who asked Jesus, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God and love your neighbor. And he says, well, who's my neighbor? Looking to some restrictions on who his neighbor is. And of course, we know Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, doesn't he? Which is basically everyone you encounter is your neighbor. Are we putting limitations on who we think God calls us to love? Are we generous in our love? The GPC, I know we're proud of being a church who stand on the truth of the Bible. And we should be. It's an awesome thing to be proud of. But are we showing the love and care in a radically generous way that Jesus calls us to? Well, second church I want to highlight is the church of Pergamum. Um, and that's in chapter 2, verses 12. Um, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of my faithful witness, Antipas, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you, Soon, and I will war against them with the sword in my mouth. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. But to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give to him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So as we come to the church in Pergamon, there's two points to note, really. Um, a two-edged sword, which he mentions. The proconsul of the province of Asia was given the right to execute, known as the right of the sword, which other governors in Rome weren't allowed to have. Satan's throne is mentioned in there as well. Pergamum was steeped in the practices, um, which included uh, being the earliest and greatest center of emperor worship, uh, having an important altar to Zeus, uh, and being a worship center for uh, Aesculapos, uh, the god of healing, uh, known as the Pergamum god, who was symbolized by a serpent. Pergamum was a hotbed for pagan worship and a very dangerous place for Christians to live. But they're praised for holding fast, even though one of their number, Antipas, was martyred. But some of them have compromised. Some of them have gone to those trade guilds and deities and had those feasts in their temples. There is compromise. Again, some are claiming that it's okay to do these things, but it's not okay to invite another god to your table and to feast with them. But persevere, Jesus says. Persevere even in the midst of uh, Satan's, where Satan's throne is, if you uh, persevere in light of all of these difficulties, you will receive a reward. It says there's the hidden manna that you will receive. 
Um, mana obviously has its roots back to Exodus. Um, I'm not going to go too, into too much details about the, the hiddenness of that. Um, there is, it's explained, it's not too mysterious. Um, but those who do conquer will receive a white stone. Um, and while the exact meaning of this isn't clear, basically what it is, um, is a sig- symbol, a sign of acquittal, of wrongdoing. At court trials, jurors expressed their verdict by casting stones into an urn, black for guilt and white for acquittal. You're no longer guilty. It may also be a sign of spiritual protection and power. People commonly carry precious stones or even a pebble as an amulet or charm. On the pebble there was a sacred name which could be summoned in a time of difficulty and would provide protection from demons. These are not Christian things. Um, They are things of the culture. And Jesus is taking those things of the culture and saying, if you hold fast, essentially you don't need those things. I will provide your acquittal. I will provide your protection. I will provide a, 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 a white stone for you. And on that will be a new name that only I know and you know. It's a way of taking the things of the culture and subverting them and saying, don't trust the culture. Trust me. Don't trust the things of the world. Trust me. We've got to move on quickly. So last church that I want to uh, look at is uh, the church of Laodicea. Jesus says, you are neither hot nor cold. Most people probably know this, but Laodicea was um, renowned. um, Sorry, there were two cities around Laodicea that were renowned for their hot springs, or their, um, one was renowned for its hot springs, Colossae and Hierapolis. Um, they were very close. Colossae's springs produced cold and pure water that was incredibly refreshing to drink. Hierapolis' hot springs produced calcium carbonate deposits, resulting in spectacular gleaming white hillsides, strikingly uh, visible at Laodicea six miles away, but it also made the water um, nauseous to drink. And um, basically this idea of these springs of water, hot and cold, would have been common to the people um, in Laodicea. So you're neither hot nor cold. Um, and is basically what, what John and Jesus is saying here, is that the problem with the church is that they did not feel any hardship. The church is wealthy. I'll read this to us. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would, you, would, that you were e- would that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, for the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. As I said, uh, Laodicea was a really wealthy city. Uh, It was made wealthy in part by its textile industry, uh, linked to the black wool that it produced. And what the problem is, is the people of Laodicea were so comfortable in their wealth that they didn't feel any problems. They didn't really feel the persecutions of the other churches, They didn't feel the need to strive for what they had in life. They didn't have that absolute dependence on God or that 
that searching or that longing for what they needed in order to survive, they're pretty comfortable. I think it's a little bit like us, not just in Glendowie, but in New Zealand. Things can be pretty comfortable, can't they? It can be pretty complacent. With that comes a blandness if we don't watch out. If we don't stay hot for Jesus, we become lukewarm. We become like the culture. We become like Laodicea. What does Christ say? You need to buy gold from me. Gold that is refined by fire. It's like I uh, mentioned our, uh, the vine imagery. In that imagery, Jesus says, every vine that produces fruit, I will prune so that it may bear even more fruit. Gold refined by fire is the same sort of imagery. It is gold is refined and made even more pure by going through the hardship of a furnace. That's what the people of Laodicea needed. Hardship, testing, some heat on the, on the gold to make it really pure and refined. Are we putting ourselves out there for Jesus? Are we truly living our faith as Christ is calling us to so that people do test us, so that the heat does come on, so that we can have our faith refined and sharpened? So that we can truly be the church that Jesus is calling us to be. Let's not settle for being lukewarm Christians. Let us be refreshingly cold, not in the non-Christian sense, but let us be refreshing or let us be on fire. Let us be hot, but not lukewarm. We don't want to be a bland bunch of people. We don't want to be bland Christians. Even though we do not live in a world we are called, where we are called to stand firm in the face of violent persecution and martyrdom, Satan's attack on our church is still strong. The seduction to compromise our allegiance to Christ and Christ alone is always called into question, whether it be through the adoption of a new ethic, relativizing the truth that we know about Christ, or even acting out in some of the perverse ways our society chooses to hide below the surface. Or perhaps our allegiance can be moved to comfort and the deceitfulness of an easy way of life which blunts the sacrificial edge of discipleship which Jesus calls every one of his disciples to live in. Have we taken our cross upon our backs and are we truly following Christ? Or perhaps our orthodoxy has become our idol and we feast in the temple of the lofty ideas of our heads while dehumanizing Christ and are stingy and not generous, judgmental and not gracious, and walling ourselves up in a stronghold of ideas and ideals while blocking the very people Christ came to save by heaping upon them burdens and expectations that we ourselves don't live up to. If it is, we need to come back to the first love, the first love we had when we heard the voice of Jesus crying, I love you without condition, come to me. And the joy that that brought and the eager desire to see our friends and our families truly come to know that Jesus loves them and that we would give anything to see them blessed because we love them too. Have we lost this love 
And is it manifesting itself in misguided energy amongst ourselves, with rivalries and quarreling or over peripheral issues and matters that threaten to destroy our reputation of a loving community where grace abounds and peace reigns. Lots of things for us to ponder. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, there's uh, so much uh, in, in these scriptures and Lord, so much that I have glossed over and Lord, so much that I've inadequately uh, conveyed this morning, Lord. But I pray that you will, will just take some of what I've said and, and plant those seeds in our hearts. And Lord, those seeds that you've already planted, Lord, would you water them and grow them? Would you help us to love you? Would you help us to hold fast to your truth? Would you help us to stand strong under the pressures that we face in this world? God, help us to, to flee from a lukewarm faith to one that is on fire. So Lord, do your work in us, we pray. Amen.